Going, guys, I'm Zeke and I'm Jay, and you're listening to the Cinema Side Show podcast episode 82. 82, 1982. It's gonna play a part in this episode, isn't it, Jake? Indeed, in two ways, actually. How would you like to elaborate on the first? Way? Well, the first is a uh, our quote of the week, Zeke, a quote from a 1982 film. Okay, our new segment. Yes, you did really well last week. I did, I got it right. You got blowout, got blowout. That, that's the name sure, of the movie, guys. Not sure how I'm going to fare in this week. Um, I'll give you this. It's actually very... In terms of our relationship to the film, it's very similar. Okay. So I think you have a good chance of this as well. But I'm just saying. All right. Quote from a 1982 film. Would you rather take your chances with me? Want me to slow down your power cycles for you? Wait! I need that! That's the, that's the quote. Ooh. <laughs> Is that... I want to say, it's, is it Ghostbusters? No. I'll give you one more go. Power Cycles. <laughs> Have I seen this film? Yes. We've both seen it. Together? Uh, kind of. Again, very similar situation to last week's film of the week. Or film quote of the week. I can't think of it. The film is Tron. Oh, man. <laughs> All right, so I'm one so, for one now. One for one. That is Steven Lisberger's Tron 1982. My, that's my favourite quote in the film. Wait, I need that. <laughs> no worries. Well, was, I'm enjoying this little, little segment that you've added into the show. Yeah. Keeping it fresh. Keeping it fresh. Uh, especially since for the third consecutive week, <laughs> I didn't watch anything but the film of the week, <laughs> apart from, once again, How I Met Your Mother um, and... Uh, that was that was it. That was my week. I was so, I was telling you we've swapped roles since episode one. It's just a yeah. It's <laughs> just all this uh, extra uni work in between uni work um, and work work. It's uh it's been tough to try and find the time to sneak in or at least the uh, being awake long enough basically <laughs> to watch a movie. So I'm gonna try and hopefully turn a corner by the end of this month. But right. We shall see. We shall see. But over to you, Jack. What have you seen the last uh, week? I I went on a tear this week. A tear. A tear. That's a that's a lot <laughs> in my in my vocabulary. That that's what the word means. Uh, no. So I'll start off. I've been all over the map in terms of like years that these films came out in. I'll start with the most recent one because this came out in cinemas last week. I actually read the logline for it in our you know next week in cinemas segment is Deer Skin. So I actually went to I went to Luna and watched this because I was very curious. Um, the thing that turned me over because I read the logline, I was like, "Oh, a guy in love with his jacket turns to crime." I was like, what, "What's going on here?" Um, the thing that turned me over was the fact that Adele Hanel's in this film, of course, from Portrait of a Lady on Fire. So I was mm-hmm. like, "Ooh, I kind of want to watch this now." And uh, I do not know what to make of this film. I really how so? Don't. Like digesting? Yeah, just like I don't know how much I like it, if at all. Ooh. It's just one of those films where it's just so strange, but I don't know if it worked, mm-hmm. it being strange. So uh, again, the logline, you know, it's about this guy and he buys this disc and jacket and he sort of becomes obsessed with it. And it gets a little, not psychedelic, it's very simply shot, but the mm-hmm. the, the idea is that he's sort of, he's a bit of a sociopath in a lot of ways or a psychopath. That's probably more accurate. Um, where he starts having like conversations with the jacket, he gets a free uh, camcorder 
like when he buys the jacket because he spends like an absorbent amount of money on the jacket. Mm-hmm. So he starts filming himself wearing the jacket and then he's like filming all the surroundings. It actually reminded me of Mr. Bean's holiday a bit when he's walking around with the camera. Right. Uh, but it sort of goes from there. Well, I'm trying to think how much do I want to like explain all the plot. But Without it, like it, spoiling too much of it? Yeah, exactly. Because it's definitely worth going into this pretty blind and just going with the flow. It's a very short film as well. It's like 70 minutes or something like that. And it's from the guy who did the movie Rubber, which I think is like one of those very raunchy, weird mm. films. Like, oh, this hot girl in the desert and a, and a talking tire is rolling. I don't think it's talking, but like, it's like a really far out. Abstract. Yeah. yeah film right. that I think a lot of people hate, but then it has this little cult following in a way. Imagine if like Aeroplane was like a really bad film. There would be some people who like adore that film, even if it was like terrible. I don't know if you actually like Aeroplane or not. <laughs> I've never seen it. Ah, oh, fair enough. So it's right. a, it's like one of the few parody films I just haven't gotten around to yet. Yeah, I I love flying, a flying high airplane is the both correct titles I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um, I love that film, but yeah, it's it's it definitely has its own cult following. I think it's actually a really funny, well made comedy. Yeah, film. Um, and this film, I think it de- definitely takes itself more serious than a film like Rubber, but I, there is just a sense of weirdness that I wasn't sure whether I liked or not. I was a little confused by some of the motivation, especially towards the end of the film, some of the stuff that happens. But I I keep appreciating it at the same time. Mm. So I just, I don't... I gave it three stars on Letterboxd because ultimately the difference for me between two and a half stars and three stars is it's okay, I recommend it, or it's okay, I don't recommend this. And I still lean towards... I kind of want other people to watch this film because just I'm... going to really, help you through yeah, it. Exactly. Um... I don't know. It's a fascinating film, so I would love. Well, it's a good, th- good thing, yeah. good exposure at least. Yeah, exactly. Got you back in the cinema again. Ah, uh, anything to take me back in the cinema. Here's the thing. I, I it was again. You know, it was like a Thursday afternoon, so it was me and just a bunch of like old people who <laughs> clearly have retired from whatever jobs they've had, uh, and they loved it. They were laughing, having a fun time. Though, and and I was laughing too. There's some funny moments. It had that effect of I think Marvel has made us laugh at movies too much now. You oh, of, yeah, I see yeah. what you mean. Yeah, yeah. you sort of, you're always, you're always laughing watching a movie for five minutes, and I'm sitting there being like, oh, was it that funny? I, I feel like Marvel's done that to the audience. Especially when it feels like it's gotten to that point with Marvel movies where it feels like a person's holding up like a card being like, laugh. Laugh now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like the studio sitcom, audience. Yeah, studio sitcom <laughs> audience, yeah. Um, absolutely. But um, I, I think I do recommend this film because it is so interesting and fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, even though I was, don't know... You know what? I'll attribute it to this. When everyone watches Parasite, they love it, and then they get to the very end, that final scene, they're like, I don't know yet. It takes a while for you to know whether you like or hate the ending, the Parasite, mm-hmm. because of the direction it takes. Yeah. And this right. film, it gets there slowly. Like, it's very well-paced in terms of how wild the plot gets. Mm-hmm. So you have plenty of time to digest it. But I think it's the same thing, where it's like, I just don't know if I liked it or not. But um, right. absolutely recommend people seeing it though. It's very good. Uh, one film I did see. This is on YouTube. It's very really 1936. So uh, I finally watched a Charlie Chaplin film. Oh, no, it's on YouTube. Yeah. So I think I think Modern Times, City Lights, and Great Dictator are all on YouTube. Right. And which one was this one? Uh, so the one I watched was Modern Times, mm-hmm. which I think was his. It was his last quote unquote silent film. I don't know if I would call this a silent film. It is by definition, I suppose. It's like the entire thing's like there's music playing under it and you have the flashcards to represent dialogue. Yeah. But then every now and then they do have 
dialogue. So every now and then someone will actually speak. I'm like, oh, okay, is that is this a silent film? I think it was the transitional period because mm-hmm. this was his last silent film. Film. This is the last time that he played the um the famous character, the uh, um the tramp. Is sort of the him with the mustache and yes. the, the the bowler, bowler hat. hat. Yeah, exactly. Um, this is the last time he portrayed that particular character. So I think this was sort of the transitional period that goes into Great Dictator, where Did he you has enjoy like, it? monologues. I loved it. I was about to swear. I'm going to mm. try not swear. <laughs> <laughs> I love this film's fantastic. That's I, the one that's played in Joker. Yes, it is. I went back and watched. And I was like, yeah, it's the same. Him um, roller skating in the mall because mm. in, in the in the actual story, he becomes a, a night guard. Or a night watchman type, so he's actually right. working in there and he's he's messing around with the girl that he sort of um, bumped into. Uh, I won't say too much. I, I his thing. I was shocked at how I know modern times, modern the themes were. It tackles homelessness, unemployment, uh, sort of all these ideas about the industry or just industrial workers and how everyone's sort of put into this minefield of, of monotonous working. Well, especially and, when you bridge into his next film, which is The, the, mm, the Great Dictator, which is a direct uh, stabbing at, 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 at Hitler. At, at Hitler, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So. I, yeah, that's the next one i got to watch, absolutely. But, um, I, yeah, just stuff like that I was blown away with. Even, the, like, the production design, if you never know... And, you know, it's all slapstick comedy and he's yeah, moving around and he's awesome. got this amazing animated, like, thing about him. Of course, he directed it, wrote it, and, and yeah. stars in it. And just his movement alone and the way he interacts with the production is like, you never know what's not going to be interacted with. Mm-hmm. When he walks into a house, you just have no idea which part of the house is going to fall apart, which which part of the house is he going to interact with, how the set changes based on these things. I don't know. I just, everything about it was just so genius. I, I like, I get it. Mm. Immediately got the hype <laughs> about Charlie Chaplin, so... So you're gonna you're gonna be watching a lot more Charlie Chaplin stuff. Now? I hope so. Yeah, in the in the near future, He's, oh, it was incredible. It's good, you're getting a good variation here. Yeah, I'm trying to, but um, I so these next two films, I'm pretty sure you've seen both, so we can get a bit more of a dialogue here, mm. as opposed to me just me teaching you about. Shema. I mean, there have been weeks on this show where I've done the exact same thing no, to you. That's fair enough. So, <laughs> um, it's nice that you've taken the reins, um, and we've actually got something to talk about in this segment because. You know, that's just nice. Yeah. No, that's good. Good, a little, little more range from the film of the week, so to speak. Yeah. So the next one you definitely have seen. You've been trying to get me to watch this for years. Okay. I finally watched Arrival. Oh, it's good. It's very good. How good is it? This is a great this film. This is so good. <laughs> <laughs> End of discussion. Yes. No, I Arrival was is one of those films I watched last year, and it was easily one of the standout films from the you know, 365 I did last year. Um I think it really is one of those uh, turning corner films for me with um, is it Amy Adams. Yep. Yes. And another standout performance from Jeremy Renner, which Our boy. I can <laughs> I can take Jeremy Renner any day of the week. He's the, my American Ben Mendo. <laughs> <laughs> no, I like I he's on it. He's incredible, I think. And I think he, because the MCU films, I think he sort of, at least up until, honestly, probably until Endgame, I would say, mm. He didn't get much of a spotlight, and what little spotlight he constantly was, you know, sort of shunned because he wasn't as uh, important as some of the other characters. Yeah, he he got like a couple of scenes in Age of Ultron, and I was like, oh look, Hawkeye. Yeah, Ugh. you're right. And he does so, get yeah. his Endgame. He does get pretty good justice done in Endgame. Mm. There's a decent portion there, and a, a decent portion even in Civil War. Um, but yeah, for the most part, he's sort of just another one that makes up the background. 
Um, whereas, you know, and then, you know, we've talked about like Wind River on the show and, yep. and things like that, where you really get to isolate and see how good he is. And, and Arrival is another one of those films where mm. him alongside Amy Adams, it's pretty awesome. Yeah, they definitely work really well together. And just even like the sci-fi elements of... We well, can see how, why Villeneuve got Blade Runner and now Dune. Yeah, exactly. Well, I think this is my first film I've seen of his including like prisoners and stuff. I haven't seen any of these other films. Oh, okay. So this was a great introduction. I feel because you're right. It's immediately, it's like, okay, now I see why he's got the gigs that he's doing now. Yeah. With Blade Runner. and Doom. He seems to handle sci-fi really well. Like mm. that, like that prisoners is a little like, not that's a bit more grounded. It's thriller. a drama. Yeah. Um, but yeah, obviously with Blade Runner, uh, 2049 and, and now Dune that was supposed to be coming out this year will probably get delayed till early next year. Yeah, we don't even have a, we don't even have a poster yet, so no, no. So, but he's definitely found his sort of realm where he works the best in. Mm. Um, and I, I I really like this film. I think this film puts a real emphasis on language and communication. That, no. That's the word communication right there. Yeah, the key word. And I love you're right. I love that it focuses more on that more so than like. The wider, I thought of Contagion a lot watching this film because Contagion takes this premise of like a worldwide deadly virus or disease mm-hmm. and it's like, let's look at every possible reaction to this. And I like that this film doesn't. It's like you get your like, oh, here's the YouTube conspiracy theorist. Uh, but other than like a couple of rare exceptions, the film is very focused on like, here's the military response. Here's the wider political response. And again, you're right. It's all about communication and yeah. with, within fellow humankind and and exterior mm. <laughs> with the monolith that comes down. Um, but even just like those visuals as well, I think it all beautifully complements yeah, each the, other. Even the style of uh, alien design is so unique mm. and interesting. Um, yeah. It's a really great, really great film. Yeah. Uh, I was deserved all the praise it got. It got a lot of, it did get a lot of uh, nods and nominations. I'm pretty sure. Okay, so. cool. Yeah. I think I'm trying to, cause I had it on Blu-ray. It has, it has like the banner on it. Yeah. One such and such. I don't remember which, it, what it won, but you're right. It got a lot of, I don't know. Put him on yeah, the map, I, I guess. can't tell you what it won. No, it got a decent amount of nominations though. So yeah. I, yeah. Well deserved. Yeah. Wonderful spectacle. Wonderful. You've really gone all over the script. place this week. I'm going all over. Here's the thing, because it started with me looking at like the most popular letterboxed films of uh, the 2010s. So that's what led me to Arrival and the next one I'm about to talk about Black Swan. Have you seen Black Swan? I ha- it's sitting up there oh. right now, but I have not watched it. Aronofsky. Oh, Aronofsky. Uh, this is my favorite Aronofsky. Whoa. Um, I still. I haven't seen The Wrestler, though. Yeah, I was going to say The Wrestler is still mine, but boy, does that boy do grit well. Mm, mm. Kind of uncomfortableness. Yeah, this definitely feels... Like I said, I haven't seen The Wrestler, but this feels like a nice um, complimentary piece to it where The Wrestler is, I'm guessing, about like sport and the physical nature of it in the same sense that the physical nature of of dancing in black swan is addressed and especially like i think it in theory i feel like it would work better in black swan because of you know the petite body of the dancers mm-hmm. and they're all women and stuff so it's like there's a bit more of a like you're cringing a little bit more when like the damage is done yeah i've, I've heard some things about it and i'm not i've never been brave enough to put it in okay like i wouldn't say it's that bad like, there's a few, like, ooh, moments, but it's not, like, terrible. There's a part when she's, like, peeling her skin off that's a little little tough to watch. It ends up being, like, a bit of a hallucination. That's what I think this film does really well, is melding the surreal visual uh, with, like, the reality of what's actually happening. And this is something that I think this is my... Actually, no, I've seen three of his films. I've seen Mother, and I've seen Pie, and I think it's actually a little more comparable to Pie in that sense. 
I have not seen either. Yeah, so Pi is this was I think it was his directorial debut. It was high contrast black and white sixteen millimeter. So right off the bat, the visual is just like taking over everything else that's happening in that film. But it is very psychedelic in that way. And I think I guess yeah, because you haven't seen Mother either. Then the I guess the best way to put it is it there's a lot of aspects where it's like this is a horror film, but a lot of the horror is because it's psychological. Sometimes you're looking at the visuals, you don't so really know what's going Black on. Black Swan sort of got that sort of... Yeah. I, the best way, if you listen to our Baby Teeth episode last week, we talk about a scene where there's something that happens in a party scene. We can't put our finger on. Is this real? Is this so realism? Mm-hmm. We don't... It's similar to that. That's probably the best way I can compare it to. Um, but in a more horror genre yeah, fair, fair. condition. Yeah, um, okay. I loved it. I thought this film was excellent. Hmm. Yeah. It's, it's up there. I've got to get... Got to brave it. Um, I like I've heard really good things about it. Really good mm. performance from uh, Natalie Portman and uh, excellent, yeah, Mila Kunis. I think the other she's one. great in it too. Yeah, she's excellent. It's film. nice to see her out of the realms of sort of comedy, whereas she's sort of been pigeonholed for most of her career. Yeah, because I was rewatching Ted. I can't. I said it to you a minute ago. I don't know if recording Ted, or yeah. not. Um, yeah, she's in Ted, and it's interesting. Her position in Ted is such a balance because they need to make her the bitch without being the bitch. You know, she's the one ruining the bromance. Uh, it's very precarious, isn't it? Um, it it I, walks a tightrope. It's and I don't think it's handled great in that film. I mm. think I, I like Ted. Yeah, I think Ted's funny. Um, we were talking about off air that Ted Two is incredibly weird. Um, <laughs> it's very weird. But I think in Ted Two, at least the plot's a little bit more. Uh, well, at least a little bit more direct. I think it, in the first Ted. I think in Ted 2. I mean, there's oh. like a collection of skits, but for the most part, it's just about... Uh, it's, it sort of feel like an extended Family Guy episode, actually, to be honest. I don't rate... I don't know I don't if rate, I agree with I don't, that. I don't rate Seth MacFarlane's films. He's had more duds than a, than thumbs up, I, I guess. I don't even know if he's had a hit. He's had I this, think the this first is, Ted's a hit. I really... It's like a... People like it. Made a lot of money. Shitload of money, actually. Yeah. I think people were excited to see... I mean, the concept's pretty funny. Yeah, no, it's a great. I mean, I think the actual structure of the first Ted's really well done. But again, Mila Kunis's role in it, it's tricky because again, she needs to be the nagging girlfriend. She's just doing a Meg. And <laughs> see, I think she's definitely treated better in that film than she is in Family Guy's yeah. Meg. <laughs> that, that would be hard to fail at. But um, you're right; it's good to see her in, in Black Swan. Actually, she she's doing a role, uh, like a serious role. Yeah, yeah. she's actually doing sure. a role, and she sort of plays the antagonist in that film, um, kind of, sort of. But, kind of sort of yeah but that, that's the thing it's like the antagonist is it herself dun 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 ah. whoa I'm saying, <laughs> whoa man I'm I gotta get around well. to watching it for yeah, sure it's great uh, the only other thing I'll throw out is that I actually Entertainment Weekly put out the 10 year anniversary uh, Scott Pilgrim versus the World table read so it was like a zoom call of the whole cast winter and I actually really enjoyed that Okay. It was actually really fun. I I saw your rating on Letterboxd. I did not realize you felt that way about Scott Pilgrim, but that's okay. I give it two and a half, three? You give it two and a half stars. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus. Come at me. Come on. I will I will on another episode. Yeah. <laughs> it might have to go under the microscope again, right. I think. Um, no, but if you are a fan of the film, check it out, because they actually do a lot of effort into like doing edits during the Zoom and like all the transitional stuff, they actually weave it into the table read, which is really clever. Okay. It's fun. It's really fun. That's cool. Um, but that's, that's everything I've seen this week. Big week. That was a big week. Yeah. 
I'm impressed. I'm not a liar. <laughs> no, no, unfortunately, yeah. To be honest, another another dry week for Zeke. Um, dry week for Zeke. But I do have a fair few things to say in the second half of the show. So Ooh, very exciting. I'll be able to contribute a little bit more there. But um, yeah, did you want to bridge into... Do you have any career things you'd like to talk about before we go into um, the second half of the show? I guess uh, the only other thing I'll say, we did talk about the Soaring Saturday as my new weekly Saturday. Like, oh, let's mm. use my drone and do some stuff. Uh, I'm already starting to run out of, not content, but <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, like tra- rushing, oh yeah. crap, on the Friday, oh, i got to get some new footage. Um, so what I actually did last Saturday, I did a, a photo book thing that I did last year. So we put that up in Click Production, these, these photos that I had taken last year. Um some from like a ground perspective of like an, a structural building or obstacle and then then an aerial shot with the drone of it and sort of comparing the size and contrast of oh. of that so that's on clicker productions now you just facebook or instagram whatever um but yeah i don't think we've ever done like photography stuff before no but, but now we have now we have exactly <laughs> you've so, gone and done it jake oh sexy no worries uh, well that's, I guess that's all i have to say so. it is time for us to move into our film of the week from 1982 on episode 82 but Ooh. jake what are we watching this week of the show we're watching et the extraterrestrial An alien is left on Earth and is saved by young Elliot, who decides to keep him hidden. While the task force hunts for it, Elliot and his siblings form an emotional bond with their new friend. So, uh, Steven Spielberg. Steven. Stevie baby. Our voice Steven, 1982. We have a lot of boys. Um, <laughs> <laughs> All of our directors All the boys, boys in the yard. I will say, um, one of the new perks uh, I was saying off the show to you, I got Letterbox Pro, which is like a little paid subscription add-on Letterbox, and it gives you all these new like statistics and stats for all the films you watch. And I've watched nearly, actually no, that can't be right, like six hundred directors or something. That's insane. Yeah, because it takes all the films you've logged and seen, and then it shows how many different directors you've seen. It's like over six hundred now. That's pretty good statistics. So we have six hundred mates. Are you plugging Letterbox Pro? <laughs> yes i am letterboxed well come at us <laughs> uh yeah so obviously um there's a big film that i from steven spielberg that mm. i had never seen before never seen so as of last year i hadn't seen jurassic park and i ticked <sighs> that off last oh. year oh. and this year i ticked off et oh. so here we are <laughs> here we are well Zeke, uh, straight up general question. Never seen E.T. before. We actually have E.T. with us right now. We do. He doesn't make sound. You got him? Okay. Got him. Much like our Rise of Skywalker episode, we had the talking we stick. We might put a little promo table. up for it later. Yeah, check our Instagram pages. Or what? Oh my God, he's rubbing his belly. His scaly yeah. belly. He does look nicer though. Like, you look at his smile. He does look less creepy. He's pretty creepy. He is very... <laughs> I had that staring at me my entire childhood from the top of my cupboard <laughs> going to bed. Uh, no, so so E.T.'s with us, of course. Yes. Uh, guest of the episode. Um, Zeke, what did you think of E.T.? Um, honestly, it was, it was pretty magical, isn't it? I think it magical is... is magical the, is the word. The word. If you sum it up in one word, it's, magical is definitely the word for it. Um, there's a real the 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 two things when I was watching it that were triggering in my head. Obviously, the, the most obvious one was uh, Stranger Things, which we had both seen <laughs> yeah. all three seasons now. Um, 
and I can clearly see some of the huge influences that 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 film would have had on on uh, what are the brothers called? What are they called? What are the brothers. Oh God, um, Duffy brother, Duffer, du- Duffer brothers. Duffer brothers. Yep, Duffer brothers. Um, I think of the Avengers guys. Um, we Russo's, came up with Goonies yeah. being one of the other key influences Absolutely, in the car. Yeah. Um, both 80s films. Um, and I can clearly... This one especially very prominent with the D&D opening. The um, bikes. The bikes. Uh, even the telekinetic powers and stuff like that. Yeah, um, well, I mean, that Stranger Things shot of the car flipping, that is an absolute... That's an E.T. Yeah, shot. Right absolutely. There. So, um, that came to my mind. Actually, Peter Pan came to my mind. Interesting. Um, and I'm going to elaborate a little bit on that. Um, Don't. Uh, don't. Um, I'm kidding. It's not like this is the whole point of this. Don't. Song. I don't care. <laughs> uh, yeah. No, it came to my head because of um, the obviously the huge emphasis on um, really excluding uh, adults from the narrative. Yes. Um, real That's emphasis. a great pickup. Yeah. Um, to the point where really the only two adults they get on camera dialogue and appearances. Mm. With the exclusion, obviously, of the end chase scene where you can see them in wides and such like that, yep. is uh, Keys and uh, the mum. Yeah, that's one. Keys and Mary. Mary. Um, yep. And obviously, uh, everyone else, up until a certain point, probably pushing the last 25, 30 minutes of the film, definitely from the bottom of the second act to the start of the third act mm. onwards, you get wides and generic, but it's very exclusive to the two adults. I mean, that's a lot of parallels to sort of Winona Ryder and David Harbour in Stranger Things. Mm. Um, and then on top of that, um, most of them are shot from the waist down or shot like Charlie Brown characters. Yeah, so I'm glad I'm glad you picked this up as well because, I mean, I have seen E.T. before, but not in a very long time. Definitely prior to me mm. studying film or learning anything about film Yeah. Um, from a technical standpoint. So that was a nice surprise to me as well. Watching it was, oh, yeah, the, the way they frame adults because it is such a children's... It's like perspective in this film. You're right, other than the mother. Uh, up until I actually checked, it was the 80 minute mark before you see any actual recognizable adult face. Is when you see Keys's face through the uh, the mask when mm-hmm. he sort of... with the exception of the mum. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, but you're right. Everything is like but no one they sees cut their heads off. They're yeah. in silhouette. This Adults all... don't see ET until ET's pretty much that bottom of the second and third yeah, act. Exactly. Um. um which would probably be around the seventy minute mark. Um, well, I think that would be. I mark. think that was eighty as well, because that that was the scene when you first see Keys's face, even through the mask, is when they break into the house and when they find ET upstairs. Yeah, but the mum does see. A few oh, minutes okay. Earlier. Yep, I got gotcha. you. ET, but yeah, around that mark. Yeah, definitely past the halfway. Point. Over over mm-hmm. an hour in. Yeah. Um, and that's obviously um some really cool blocking scenes that they do. Um, I. I find this film, yeah, very, it's just an amazing, uh, it's an amazing accomplishment. And it mm. really goes to show he was really the, he was one of, if not the most prominent director in at least three decades of film, um, being obviously the, uh, the 70s, 80s, 90s. Yeah. And, and each of them, he tackled such different films, mm. which I find fascinating that he just did a bit of everything. He became the premium blockbuster director and he was just churning out you know hit after hit after hit which is fascinating you know you look at someone like scorsese who also had a really prominent 70s and 80s career mm. but thematically there's definitely 
are way more similarities between all of his work. Whereas Spielberg... Yeah, you, you could sort of... With Scorsese, I think you can easily point it. Like, mobster films and films about Christianity. There's yeah. very few exceptions outside of those two topics. Yeah. Um, and you're right, Spielberg... Or deranged in, individuals sort yeah, of exactly. acting out in society. Um, whereas... In you a know, society. <laughs> whereas you look at someone like Spielberg, who <laughs> went from things like Jaws... And the, the, only, the only through line for a lot of them is mm. blockbuster film. Yeah. But he was the guy who created the blockbuster film, so of course that... But none of them terms of uh what happens in them is is similar at all i mean you go from a man-eating mm. shark to a film about a, an alien that gets left behind and f- develops a relationship with a kid to this archaeology archaeological yep. you know <laughs> treasure finder i mean it's just all over the shop yeah so, and I, I we we're struggling to think of 80s films last week i one of them from 85 is the color purple which is a drastically different film, again, from everything Spielberg had done up was to that Was that the point. 80s? 85, I think. Wow, okay. I double-checked that a couple of days ago, whenever it was. Yeah. Um, but no, you're right. I just and, and, and this film in particular, I think, is like such a masterclass of direction. I think Jaws is too, mm-hmm. the way he uses the camera there. But I think in this film, uh, especially with the idea of it being a kid's perspective. And, you know, Ellie even says to his sister, to young Drew Barrymore... Like, oh, uh, only we, only us kids, adults can't see E.T. And obviously he's just trying to convince her to not, not say anything. Mom. Yeah, but it's like that's such a clear ode to the direction of the film in terms of yeah, how precisely. it's shot, what Spielberg's doing. So, uh, I mean, it's probably a good time to bridge into sort of the child actors, which are yes, um, obviously one of the more early examples that even in learning film, uh, working with younger children, this is one of the best examples of a sort of an ensemble kid cast that are all mm. range from being good to great. Um, and obviously in in uh, latter years, like we've talked about with Stranger Things and with even Stephen King's It, mm. um, uh, definitely that's a big part of it, having that sort of... Uh, the It's been tough to find as many good kid actors, whereas mm. all three, you could argue all three of this family are really good and they're really good at their roles. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned this because I actually did write a note about how I think nowadays finding good child actors is frankly not that hard anymore because of social media, because of all this awareness. There's so many people throwing their kids into Hollywood, I feel like. Yeah. Uh, and, and pretty much all of the Stranger Things cast, I mean, they, they sent at... their video auditions in, on their phones. And I know they, and especially, yeah. you know, you look at young adult actors, especially, you know, like ranging from that sort of 17 to. 22 demographic it's huge mm. now i mean yeah and you can thank people like um, you know greta gerwig and and even noah bombuck for an uh, okay, extent yeah. bringing out those you know those chalamets and those you know saoirse ronans and florence pews and those ones who are now yeah. coming through into young adulthood even but, like we talked about ladybird on that episode like yeah. just that entire cast like how many stars came out of that and you're at the age is appropriate yeah precisely but um in the 80s it would have been so hard to find kids like at this level especially henry thomas who plays elliot that mm-hmm. audition tape and we even watched it in class mm-hmm. in one of our direct class we watched the audition tape and the famous you know all right kid you've got the job <laughs> at the end of that I, like that is brilliant i like i like him but i like i said to you i sent you a message halfway through the film i actually oh, think yeah. drew barrymore was the best part of this film <laughs> yeah so she has a perfect perfect yeah what did i say i was, I, I was like lying in bed and zig sent me one message he's like oh she's so cute isn't she <laughs> But she's like not obnoxious, and she's right. kind of charming. Yeah. But she's smart, and yeah. yeah, she's really well cast. What has she done since then? <laughs> <laughs> she's dated Adam Sandler a bunch. <laughs> yeah, it's true. But yeah. it is fascinating to see this like 
oh, she must have been only four or five at the oh, time. Oh, she was so young. Yeah. Um, and then to see her literally grow into Hollywood, basically, which is fascinating to me. So yeah. Um, Again, I think Spielberg's casting is just on point in this film. Yeah, and I mean, I think that's unfortunately because of obviously, uh, like we talked about, he was such a prominent director in the 70s, 80s and 90s. And then even, like we were saying, early 2000s was sort of the turning point where he still had good films, like Catch Me If You Can is probably actually, I find, his most entertaining film to watch. It's very Um, fun. It's very fun. I don't know if I would say it's his most entertaining, though. This film's entertaining. This is a fun watch. Um, But that's definitely the sort of the slow, like you said, a slow decline. Right. And then eventually you get to the post and Ready Player One. Yeah. I can't can't bring myself to watch either of those I watched the post. Oh, yeah. It's just a... It's a nothing. It's a discount spotlight. Right, right. Um, That's a shame. It is a shame. But I would I would argue the post, there's nothing inherently wrong with it, but because, because it's nothing special and it's coming from Steven Spielberg, mm. that's actually That makes a it fail. worse. Yeah. yeah, it's a fail. You know, had that been some nobody director, had that been a Todd Phillips even. Right, if he did that in 2016, it would be like, oh, okay, okay, yeah. good job, sort of thing. Heading in the right Steven direction. Steven Spielberg, you're right. Exactly. So, so um, yeah, where, where would you like to take this conversation next, buddy? Um, well, Push into the spoiler territory? Uh, perhaps. I think one thing I really noticed, again, there were, there were two things that I really noticed, like watching it this time, be like, oh, man, I never noticed this as a kid, or maybe I just completely okay. forgot as a kid, talking about some of the story with, with E.T. coming in, is, number one, the mother's involvement. So, Spielberg... <laughs> see, Zeke's cuddling him right now. You said uh, E.T.'s involvement. I thought it would bring him up to the Yeah, mic. bring him up yeah, to the Yeah, but sorry, mother's involvement. Yeah, so, uh, one thing I... Upon hearing more about the, this movie, because there's a lot of famous stories out there about, you know, the audition, of course, for Elliot. Yes. Uh, one is that this film was pretty much brought upon because of Steven Spielberg's... His parents' divorce. And that was a big inspiration into him wanting to do this film. And my thinking from watching the film and then years later learning about that was, oh, I guess the mother is like incredibly absent. And because of the divorce and because of all these things, that's why she doesn't recognize E.T. for most of the film. And that is kind of in there, but she also does have a prominent role. Like she's in the kids' lives yeah, more than I Yeah, I would thought. argue she would argue. Yeah, I think she's hugely prominent. I think she's just actually, if anything, she's just a single working mum that's trying to balance three kids and mm. a job and everything at one time while going through a, a mentally taxing time in this divorce. Yeah. And I think he hates a, Mexico. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot more. Um, yeah, very. Clear inspiration comes back to things like Winona Ryder in, in Stranger Things. There's yep. clearly through lines between both sort of this, because uh, of all these things that she has to balance in her life, she can find, she finds herself quite overwhelmed. Yeah. Um, and it, it, but it absolutely explains which, why she doesn't notice CT <laughs> for like yeah, most of the film. Especially, well, I mean, at the end of the day, particularly for the most part, there's never, apart from that one scene with Drew Barrymore being like, look at this friend. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Which, to be honest, if I was running around and, you know, there's like uh, this three-year-old saying, look at my friend and the TV's going, you know, it's a really well-blocked scene. Um, yeah, because he's always falling over or hiding behind the TV. There's enough in there. Yeah, there's some intri- So there are some s- strange things about this film. Okay. Um. And I'm feeling like I'm wanting to jump into spoilers. If that's All right, cool. so spoilers for this. How? What is this? Thirty. Twenty-eight years. years. Twenty-eight years. Uh, Wait. No. Thirty-eight years. Oh damn! Yeah. 
We're old. 38 years. Wow. This movie's nearly four decades. That's insane. Um, <laughs> yeah, so, uh, okay. Uh, for a little thing that I thought was... Like, I really liked what they did with the mum, and I think she's a... I think the way that they sort of work around the fact that she's just really overwhelmed by a lot of things. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really summed up in that uh, dinner conversation where... Right, the one the, early on. Very early on. Yeah, penis breath. That does have <laughs> the, um, you know, the hate Mexico line. Yeah. And that really establishes the family dynamic. I mean, at the end of the day, I think E.T., well, e. the actual physical alien, represents the escapism and unification of this family. Mm. Um, and sort of how... To escape all their problems, they you know have this outlet that actually unifies them all together, yeah, and makes them stronger in the in the long run. Particularly the relationship between the siblings, and particularly yeah, Elliot and yeah. his older brother. That's a good point. They they're at they kind of at each other's necks um, up until they. You're right. They unify over protecting ET. Yeah, and I I like the family dynamic there because there's a sort of um, neglect of responsibility that comes from the older brother. I'm not sure what Elliot's older brother's name. Uh, let me is. just double check here. Uh, Michael. Michael. Played by Robert McNaughton? Yes. Um, Norganton. And it's sort of interesting how that, that dynamic goes where it's like um, he sort of kind of blames Elliot for a lot of things that he's actually responsible for. and mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, there's... Um, and obviously, eventually, he steps into um, becoming uh, responsible um, for E.T.'s well-being, but at the same time, also listening to his brother. When his brother's actually yeah. got something to say, especially well, he starts when to take he, him seriously. Well, especially when he discovers that he wasn't lying about ET the whole time. Yeah, it's not a raccoon. What did they say again? It's not a raccoon. It's yes. A... Yeah. yeah. Is it or a goblin. 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 It's a goblin. Um, <laughs> and I really like the dynamic of that that uh, that real tense scene where uh, the you know the mum's asking who's wash uh, to wash the dishes and he keeps deflecting and saying, "Oh, I set up the table," and then yeah. And the other two are like, no, we actually did our jobs. You haven't done your job. And it's sort of like they all have their mini arcs that they have to achieve, particularly the brothers. But, um, yeah, I I like that sort of how they mend this, how mm. this extraterrestrial life ends up mending this family through that sort of sense of wonder. And that's sort of actually prevalent in even, like, I was the, why I thought of Peter Pan. It's sort of a similar dynamic yeah. in Peter Pan where at first the kids are, you know, like isolated but also not all on the same base and over the course of the film a a larger than life creature brings them together in the form of peter pan in that situation and yeah this it's et well that that's I, definitely et's role in this film is to to um not necessarily distract from the divorce but you know i think i think the, especially elliot in that first scene elliot's trying to talk to his brother and, and his friends yeah. and he's sort of he's the one for oh get us the pizza oh you drop the pizza like he needs a friend in that moment. Et serves serves yeah. that purpose. Yeah, I mean, I like that. I I, I like the um every a- aspect of it, and even you could argue keys to an extent is sort of a. a I kind of wish he was a little bit more of a surrogate father figure. Um, I think hmm. he's he's nice and he's kind, but he actually slowly morphs back into the antagonist, which we was alluded to up until we met him and then it kind of pushes him back. Whereas if he had mm-hmm. helped E.T. escape and, you know... Right, it would have them. solidified his position. Whereas oh, he at first comes off as this guy who really just wants to conserve life and then he's sort of, sort of like the rationale in these, these faceless government men. 
And seeing as he's the only real other discernible adult figure mm. in the film... That you can make out, yeah. It would have served well for them to keep um, pressing that he is, in fact, a, a, a good guy. But he's not necessarily an antagonist, really. That's my... It's a, yeah, it would have been nice if he if he was going to be more of a sort of a, a MacGuffin mm. antagonist than. I feel like you could argue that the the antagonist is like the wider adult because you're right. The perspective is from the the child's point of view and it's like NASA himself. Yeah, exactly. NASA. They're all in the suits and in silhouette. They're always sort of this. Uh, but he's the face I mean, that we associate that faction he, with. He is, and I think I think everything else is in service of when you first meet. E.T. and like his alien race in the opening scene, the idea is that we relate to him more than the adults because we d- we're not humanizing with the adults because we can't see their faces. In regards to Keyes as an individual, I'm with you in the sense that I was confused by his role because at the very end it was like, oh, I guess he is meant to be the par- uh, parental figure and yeah, he is sort of the, yeah, the nice scientist or the nice government figure. Very but- much the the David Harbour, you know, the yeah. Harbour in, uh, in Stranger Things where there's this guy who's kind of a bit of a dick, but eventually turns the corner, <laughs> you know? Yeah, but that's me. I, I'm not even with you in that sense. I mean, I am. Like, I wish there was a better job. If, if that's what they were alluding to, that he was the surrogate father or, like, the good guy, I think it comes in way too late. It's not really until the final scene when he's there watching E.T. fly away. It's like, oh, I guess he's a good guy as well. well. That's what I think. But I even think the first interaction with Elliot alludes to him being a good guy, where he's like, I've wanted this since I was 10, but uh, do you believe him at this point? When you first watch the film, do you believe he's just I not trying so. to calm Elliot? No, because he's holding his. It's the whole. Yeah. There's real emphasis on the hand holding okay. and the and that sort of like um, feeling. But yeah, it, it, the problem is it's too down the middle. It's too open interpretation. It is. It is. So I can't. Too down the middle. So I could argue that he's a good guy, but I could also argue he's not, and he's just trying to manipulate yeah. the child in that situation. But then he gives that moment uh, to be with. You know, he clears the room out of the scientists and yeah. allows him to say goodbye. I would say, with our arguments, I think it's probably more towards your right that he is like the good guy, just because he's not being shot like the other adults are being shot. The Even, rules to establish like the bad adults is mm. not being used to shoot him in yeah. terms of cinematography. Even rules. his interaction with the mum, where he's talking about the quarantine, and yeah. there, there seems to be a very positive interaction between the two. They're shot in the same frame. He's not mm. looking like he's this evil, corrupt government guy yeah. who just wants this for research. He actually noticeably looks sad when mm. um, E.T. does, quote, die. Um, <laughs> Periodically. Give me E.T. It's been a while no. since I've held him. No worries, bud. Grabbed him by the neck. Thank you. <laughs> There's enough of it for you to grab. Yeah. <laughs> so what do you want to talk about? Uh, what do you want to talk about next, bud? I think the... Um, I would love to get into... I guess the tone and the lighting. So this is a film, and you know we joked about it even coming here. I'm I'm holding my boy T right now. He keeps knocking the mic. I'm sorry, <laughs> but he does look pretty darn creepy. You know. Yeah, he's not a nice looking alien. In fact, he's probably more what uh, I would say 1960s and 197. Uh, uh, probably more late 50s, early 60s cinema sci-fi horror cinema right. would have pictured a uh, alien an extraterrestrial to look like but it was never shot in a positive connotation it was always yeah you associated the invasion with like scary image and yeah invasion you know taking over the earth sort of situation yeah. he looks i mean there's a uh, bubbliness to it because he's so short and the way he walks is kind of comical and the noise is kind of creepy like his voice he does end up speaking quite a bit mm-hmm. in the film 
but I think there is sort of this cuteness that does come through it, even though it's not over. Like I, I'm not, I'm not, I didn't like having this doll my entire life watching me sleep. I'm not going to say that that yeah, was a pleasant I, I'm not experience. Sure. <laughs> I'm just period. I'm not sure how it sold as much dolls and stuff as it did at the time because it's a creepy. Because if you think about it, not what not like a year or two later return of the jedi came out and you had the ewoks which right. were like these cute teddy bears yep. from george lucas and obviously bringing up lucas is a given with spielberg because they were so uh, tight-knit with each other i mean it was uh, in this film alone the amount of star wars references yoda walking around the star wars toys like the john williams score which you right yeah literally could pick up Put it in a Star Wars movie and it wouldn't feel out of place at all. There were times where I literally thought, like, did he just get something from Star Wars and put it in this movie? I don't think it's that overtly similar. Well, I think there's sometimes it's not all the time. Maybe I, I, there are. There's an origin that there's enough originality that I would say it's a standalone soundtrack. But at the same time, this is with most composers though. Composers, have, yeah, well, they have, uh, you know, uh. DNA in everything that they, they yeah. touch. Um, I mean, if you if you listen to Back to the Future, you can hear Avengers Endgame in it. You can hear those two soundtracks. Mm. It, it's not as overt as E.T. versus Star Wars, sonically, but you're right. There is DNA that and if you, composers if bring you just to look all their at films. Composer context, I mean, the man would have made Empire Strikes Back in 81, so they would have been very close projects together. So he's Yeah, well, this was right, made in between the trilogy. Exactly, between five and six, so it's mm. like... Well, two and three in the context of the yeah, time. Yeah, yeah. So um, he's right in the middle of working on those those blockbusters, those mm. sci-fi blockbusters. And here he is, he's got another sci-fi blockbuster. So there's a good you know, there's a good chance that it'd be overlap solely because of where his brain would have been at orchestrally speaking. Yeah. So No, I, I, de- I know what you're coming from from that. I mean, even... Like, I mean, Zimmer does the same, almost the same. Yeah. It's like, you can hear it in almost all of his stuff yeah. too. So I think when, when, when we talked about doing last week, doing this film for this week, I've had the soundtrack in my head. Like, da, na, 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 mm. like the whole, just them like flying around on the bike. Like that's how iconic it is. I haven't seen this film in decades and I still remember the music so well. And it's, it's not even as overtly visual, like the visual of him flying across the moon. That's very iconic, but the actual music, I don't hear the music in other contexts very often. So the fact that I can remember it so vividly yeah. is, a, is a key to it. But, um, and yeah, again, the star Wars is so overtly him and George the type pros. Yeah. At the time uh, that's, that's really cool to have that sort of connection with someone who's mm-hmm. at the time, very as commercially successful, if not probably more so at that period of time. I'd say, yeah, I can crunch the numbers. I feel like George would have had because of the merchandising rights, yeah, so he probably would have made more money technically. But... I mean, that's how he held on to his his whole franchise for so long, just solely mm. off merchandising rights. And if you think of Spielberg films, not a lot of them up until probably Indiana Jones probably had as I mean, close to count as the third kind. What Jaws? I can't think of a lot of selling merchandise that would come out of those films. Right. Apart yeah, from apparently, E.T. did. <laughs> yeah, right here. Yeah. Well, E.T. Right. didn't. E.T. have the one of the worst. Video games of all time. Ah, uh, that's a funny... I'm actually glad you brought that. So, I think, yeah, they had a cartridge, like a game for E.T. that was so bad. And it, it was also timing as well. This was in the... This the, relates to the film. It's merchandising. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, it was in the time um, where it was about Sorry. to have a big crash, a video game crash. Mm. Um, and there's a famous documentary out there about them having buried all of these E.T. cartridges and they had to dig them up decades later just because of the historical relevance mm. of it. Um, so yeah, ET has a very infamous place in video game history. Um, yeah. You can look; there's plenty of docos and 
information about that. Um, but you're right, that that it does count as the merchandising. It's in the, in the... But here's the thing about the the Star Wars merchandise being in this film. Elliot showing E.T. his Star Wars toys. And again, yes. that's, a, that's a Stranger Things as well. You can find it in there. Mm-hmm. Showing Eleven well, all the toys. It's that and, and then them playing D&D. Yeah, and exactly. Stuff like that. It's all in there. What This is something I didn't think about until watching this film. Because again, this is Spielberg commenting on his own divorce and his own childhood. Going through that. Him having an imaginary friend who I guess would be E.T. in this scenario. I'm shocked that he didn't place it in it as a period piece. I'm shocked that this is an 80, a 1982 film that relishes in taking place in 1982. And unlike a lot of other uh, directors who maybe they'll do a film now, they make it set in the 80s because that was what their childhood represented. Spielberg was like, no, I'm going to do an 80s film in that takes place in the 80s. Mm. So even though he's referencing his own childhood, he's still making a film that's more resonant. Yeah, that's more contemporary and resonant to the children I mean, of that I, age. I think that's a byproduct of a um, marketing I think, honestly, okay. from a producer standpoint, he probably wanted to capitalize. I think the sci-fi elements, i.e. E.T., uh, is also kind of a byproduct of the time. Sci-fi was mm. really big in the early to mid-80s. I mean, you know, Back to the Future and, mm. and Ghostbusters, which we've talked about on an episode. Yeah. Um, I think that this was sort of more a contextual choice because of sort of the blockbuster markability. I don't know if this film would work nearly as effective if it was set when he grew up, which would have been the 50s or the 60s. So, yeah, I agree. I can't imagine this taking place in the 50s. I just thought it was interesting he made that decision. Yeah. No, I don't I don't even know if it was economical because I was watching a lot of the Blu-ray like, bonus stuff and he was talking about how he didn't expect this to be a big film. Or yeah. more so, he didn't expect it to be a really great film. Also, he just wanted to do it for the I mean, he would have been too old to really grasp the wonder of the space race. Like, he would have been right. a young adult at that point. Maybe even... Yeah, just, you know, in his early... I mean, he was... Yeah, Lucas and him would have been around 18, 19 uh, when, you know, the man went to the moon. So yeah, it, sort of, point. it sort of feels like, yeah, he, he brought it... He wanted to... He had the child mindset he wanted, but he wanted to make it contemporary because at that point, the, there was a real sense of childlike wonder, obviously, with yep. Star Wars being so commercially successful... Um, and having such a close friend in George Lucas being able to just casually put a lot of Star Wars references in there kind of helps with enabling the child wonder with the outer world. Yeah. Other worlds. You know, why they play a fantasy role-playing game and and why they always, you know, he's got all these Star Wars toys. You know, it's a big time for kids to... a sense of wonder and sense mm. of wanting to be in any other world that wasn't their own. Yeah, I think I think... That's definitely a tribute to the, how big this film got. Mm-hmm. I'm guessing is you're right, the childhood wonder and kids watching something that they couldn't really fathom. I mean, that was obviously Star Wars' big thing mm. as well. I guess that, that I mean, for leads... a kid to watch this at that time would have been awesome. Mm. Mm. I think mean, this leads us perfectly into the like the special effects and the lighting and and because um, there's some. So here's the thing. I think you watched the 2002 version. Is that correct? Uh yes. You got I the... think I do. I'll just All quickly right. get up and you get can it. get up. My while you elaborate. All right, so I'm going to talk about the differences really quickly between the 1982 version and then the the 20th anniversary they made, uh, which they actually did when they premiered that. It was a live orchestra they did to play on the film, which was uh, pretty shocking. All right, Zeke, what was what was the result? What was what did we what did we land on, sir? It was the 2002 version. Oh no! Oh no! So you were telling me in the car you you could have done with less CGI. 
Uh, I more saw the seeds of Spielberg's own potential destruction. Okay, um, with that. Obviously, neither of us have seen Ready Player One, but I know <laughs> for a fact we it. both looked at Ready Player One and were like, that looks like a CGI mess. The, um, way, the way he said that so casually, the seeds of his own destruction. <laughs> I I, it's sort of the same thing. I mean, Lucas, you probably could look at some of Lucas's stuff. Uh, the fact he kept going back to his original trilogy and changing... You know, mm-hmm. CGI elements there are yeah. overdoing it, underdoing it, and then consistently recutting his film. And there's definitely uh, red flags for what would become the prequels, um, which for the most part was a CGI mess. Yeah. So I Particularly think, the second one. I think Lucas definitely probably convinced Spielberg to do this. And what, what I'm glad Spielberg does do, because I own, I own this on Blu-ray, and I'm very thankful that it was the 1982 version that's on that Blu-ray. Mm-hmm. So it's not like Star Wars where it's like impossible to find the original, original cut. Yeah. Um, so some of the differences, we talked about CGI. Yeah, there's a lot of CGI stuff with um, with E.T. In the beginning of the film, he's hopping away from everyone as opposed to in the original film. He sort of just rollerblades yeah. for everyone, which, eh, okay, whatever. That, that's not too bad. The big one for me, which I thought was funny, actually, there's a line in, in the original I'm wondering what the line was in 2002, but there was a line when they're getting ready for Halloween, they're getting dressed up, and you hear the mother uh, screaming at the brother in the background, saying something along the lines of like, oh, you can't dress up as a terrorist. No, it's a hippie. It's a hippie, yeah, you go. Yeah, it's a hippie in 2002. (laughs) It's a terrorist in the original. Really? Yes. That's fascinating. I heard that. I was like, what? No way. But yeah, that's, that's the original cut of the film. And the other one... 2002, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, post, there you go. Post 9-11 world. That make, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And then finally, the big one is the guns that magically turned into walkie-talkies. So when you watch the final chase scene of the boys being chased, they were uh, holding walkie-talkies. The original film, they were holding guns and shotguns. <laughs> Whoa! And if you, you, it's, you can absolutely notice it. The shot when they all lift up, of course, it's, we're behind the cop cars and the barricades yeah. and they start flying up. The, the guy on the left's holding a massive shotgun in his hand. See, that really emphasizes the antagonistic nature. And that's what yep. transforms it there. That's what really brings out. If you watch the 82 cut, that would make Keys look way more like a bad guy than what it does in the. I don't think Keys is wearing the. Is having a gun though. No, but obviously, if he's got people that are willing to shoot kids, um, <laughs> that doesn't really look good for his what he represents. Basically, right. well, I've seen. Even I've if seen he personally doesn't have one. Yeah, exactly. I think I've seen some people say that it makes the hysteria that the mum and the boys have a little. It makes a bit more sense when there's guns involved. They're like, oh my god, like they're getting chased and stuff. But um, I guess like I think it still works. In the two thousand two, they tend to cut her out a lot in that scene it's mostly about the kids i don't remember seeing a lot of her she gets in the car drives off and then we cut to her driving into the bush yeah well we see the shot of her yeah she walks up to the van that's everyone runs up to the van i think i don't think they changed any shots i think the only shot is there's actually a close-up of the shotgun in the 1982 version Mm. before it cuts to et's like face like the real close-up before they fly up I think that's like the only shot they've like added or removed. Everything else is just like a bit of painting, a bit it's of CGI. Intriguing. intriguing. Yeah. Um, the one thing I would say, the composites are way better in the 2002 version. Yeah, I don't I don't really remember too many problems with it. There was a couple of times with the CGI. Not so much the stuff at the start because that's kind of thankfully silhouetted in a lot of darkness. Well, that's actually one of the shots in 1982 that looks really bad. They composited the shadows like right. with, the flat, with the torches walking across the grass. 
Yeah. And it's like, why is this composite? Defin- it's so definitely, weird. definitely quite good um, mm. in the uh, 2002 version because of the silhouette and blackness. There's a couple of times where obviously they couldn't get it with the animatronic puppet. Yeah. Um, so instead they opted to like, when he extends his neck and stuff like that, when it's shot and really nice. But that's the thing. It still looks good in the original. It doesn't look terrible. It looks consumable. Consumable. Um, <laughs> I'm not really going to shun 2002 because it wasn't a great time for CGI no, apart from early. things like what the Wachowskis were doing, but that was still more working with pure human people. Yeah, and then sort of stretching them and warping them. But when it came to just pure CGI, there was Phantom Menace at that time, so you had yeah. what, Jar Jar. It, it was too early. It was just too early to, to nail it. So, um, yeah, it it was fine. It was just sometimes I was just like, ah, oh, okay. Yeah. I noticed E.T.'s less creepy as well in 2002. I'd say so. Because yeah. there's a YouTube video that shows the side-by-side um, differences. So that's a really great way to look at it. And yeah, because it's an animatronic, the face can't animate as much. So when he looks scared or when he extends his neck, like it's a little slower. It's a little... Uh, it's a bit more painful to get from one like position mm. to the other. And I and I love it. I'm like, yeah, I'm, I don't want the CGI in the... Yeah. Like, I, just, I don't know. So, yeah, I would recommend the 82 version if you can, but I, I'm glad we kind of watched both versions, though. Yeah. So, it changes. Well, at least we can talk about the comparisons. Yeah, Do you exactly. have anything else you'd like to add to uh, I think I'm pretty good. The only reason I wanted to mention the lighting really quickly is just I love how often they reuse the, the trope of, like, sort of that blue heel, uh, or hue, I should say, that mm. comes from the shed, that comes from the spaceship, that even at one point comes out of Elliot's room when E.T.'s walking out. Yeah. I just love the the repeated sort of... It's not totally motivated, but it, it does create that tone of, like, the mysterious oh, yeah. alien coming through. And, oh, I think that's fair. Um, but, uh, yeah. I guess we can bridge into highlight scenes. Let's Jake, do it. what was your highlight scene? This might be a weird one. But I want—I wanted to claim this. So I was like, "This is my highlight scene." Okay. Uh, so I want to talk about the first time E.T. and Elliot share a like a physical connection. The first time we learn that they're actually sort of physically connected in their emotions and the way they feel, you know, whether they get sick or not, mm-hmm. which is at the school. So E.T.'s roaming around the house, like drinking and watching TV and being scared by the images that are coming out, and we see Elliot reflect these emotions while in class. Uh, and I have a theory. I think this is wrong. I think. The, it sounded like the teacher was played by Harrison Ford. He had a very similar voice. Wouldn't surprise me. Is there me. a credit? Uh, I don't think he's credit. I think he's credited for a deleted scene. But I guess that wouldn't make him the teacher then. No. So I I don't know. That, that was my theory. Okay. And apparently I wasn't too wrong. No. Uh, but I just love, especially when it goes crazy, he starts releasing all the frogs and then he kisses that girl. He, ju- he jumps on the kid. That's one of the strangest scenes because you don't see that it, girl again for the rest of the movie. It is very strange, but there was something about it. I was like, man, this is so 80s. I kind of love it. <laughs> now nah, you're right. It's a, it's a weird scene. I, I kind of wish it was paid off a little bit. It doesn't need to be the romantic interest, but I don't know. Apparently, yeah, it was cut. It was he was cut. Oh, Harrison Ford. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I wouldn't make him the teacher then. I guess. No. Um, you couldn't tell because guess what? They cut his head off in the frame. Yeah. <laughs> that's an interesting uh, scene to pick. Um, I told you it's a weird one, but I, that, that's got to do it for me. I don't no, know. that's fair. Um, yeah, I would say my highlight scene has to be. It's got to be the final scene. Ah. Oh, but so shit, uh, the whole final sequence, the the. BMX champion teenagers, <laughs> which boy oh boy, they put those kids from Stranger Things to shame. They were like 
elite. Yeah, some of the tricks, man, were like, holy crap. Yeah. These kids are going to ride. Um, that chase sequence was really good. And he, yeah. he does do real, those action chase sequences really well. Uh, it was definitely reminiscent of what was to come in terms of uh, Indiana Jones and some of the creativity mm. he has in those sort of fight scenes. Um, well, I think I think um, Raiders of the Lost Ark was right before ET. Am I actually? Am I? Yeah, but that. I would say the the bigger action sequences oh, definitely come, come in Temple afterwards. Temple of Doom and Last Crusade. Raiders is actually a little bit more concerned. There's still action scenes, but they're not as uh, high impact, high octane right. action. Like this was real, real like. That's good. fair. And I like I like okay, some... eighty one. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. Yeah, for Raiders. So, um, yeah, no, I would say the, that whole final sequence, the farewell was really emotional. Um, it's very emo- I think the reason, this is another famous story, is that they tried to shoot this film in chronological order as much as possible so that the kids would have that authentic emotional connection to E.T. That's clever. That's clever. So, um, that um, directing masterclass. Yeah. Uh, masterclass. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, <laughs> it's definitely going to be one for most people's highlight scenes, but it's mine too. So yeah, no, the ending's amazing. No worries. Well, ET is out in wide release. You can pretty much get it anywhere, anywhere. on DVD and Blu-ray. <laughs> I don't think it's on Netflix. Let me quickly do a just watch check because it's not on Netflix. No, normally, you do one of those beforehand. I, do, I know. I, sometimes I slip, man. That's <laughs> oh, okay. That is more than okay, buddy. Um, I mean, yeah, you're right. ET is pretty. Uh, I would be pretty shocked if you. Oh, how do I watch ET? Uh, it's on Prime Video, Binge, and Foxtel Now, if you want to stream it, that is. Right. So, uh, there you go. If you, get, if you have any of those services, you have Foxtel Now, pff, I don't. you are rich. <laughs> no worries, yeah. So, you can catch that anywhere. Time to move into what's new in cinemas and, and still streaming. streaming. you got to tell me when you're not doing that anymore. I think I'm just going to keep doing it because there's always at least one or two films. That are like kind per, of... Yeah, that are like interesting or, or whatever. That's fair. Um, yeah, this week is no exception. There's at least one or two in here that are interesting. So if you want to catch something on Netflix this week, Project Power comes out that stars Jamie Foxx and sees a former soldier team up with a cop to find the source behind a dangerous pill that provides temporary superpowers. Well, that sounds cool, actually. Yeah, I was like, oh, superpowers. Oh, we're gonna see. Yeah, Jamie, I think Jamie Foxx is the lead, of course. Mm-hmm. And uh, you did a little fist pump there when... There's the power. The power. The power. The power. Yeah. <laughs> Just uh, watch Just Mercy, if you can. That's... They come out on Netflix? Uh, I think it's digital somewhere. I think because of all the movements that happened, you know, back in June. Yeah, they really pushed uh, it. They, yeah, they like pretty much threw it out for free, I think. Like, just watch this film. It's good. I think it's good. Uh, on stand this week, you've got Michelle Obama's Life After the White House. Seems pretty self-explanatory. So if you're interested in that, is is there a Barack Obama after the after the White Because I think that would be more interesting, but... No, Michelle, most people... Would, I know most people like her, but... Yeah, I, I would say most people... She ended up almost eclipsing him at points, I would say. She's really big in America. Okay. I'm with Bill Burr. With why? <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm probably going to get some heat for that. That's fine. That's fine. Uh, on Disney Plus, this year, you got The Greatest Showman, which comes. Uh, also, Howard is a documentary based around the lyricist Howard Ashman. Magic Camp, which stars Adam Devine and Gillian Jacobs. And lastly, I saw the trailer for this Upside Down Magic, which basically looks like high school, uh, high uh, sky high, and Harry Potter. So, Intriguing. Uh, so it was like, even though it looks not good at all, I was kind of like, oh, I like sky high. I don't know. Uh, if you want to watch a classic this week in the cinemas, you've got Titanic, which plays this uh, Sunday the sixteenth. 
Okay. That sounds right. And if you want to go, if you want to, so this is at Luna. If you want to catch it at Hoyts, they've got a bit of a Will Ferrell thing going on here. So they're replaying the other guys, Step Brothers, and Anchorman. Hmm. Is... I watched Anchorman the other night. Oh, really? First time, yeah. Well, it's not funny. first time, like recently. The millionth time. Millionth time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Love Anchorman. I don't know if any of those I'm keen to watch in a cinema. Is that though. my favorite Apatow? Probably. Which one? Anchorman, probably. Is that Apatow? I think so. Yeah. That changes a lot of things then. <laughs> I, I don't know. Um, also, The Untouchables and Star Wars Episode Four: A New Hope. is a, They're replaying that at Hoyts. Uh, and new in cinemas is a few. you got uh, La Belle Epicue. I think I'm pronouncing that right. Okay. Uh, I think it's a French film which sees a disillusioned Victor find his life turned upside down when he approaches a service known as Time Travelers, mm-hmm. which allows him to roleplay at any point in history. I feel like we read this a few months back, but I'm guessing like, yeah, it gets After, reshifted and Yeah, moved I think it got moved around for obvious reasons. Uh, made it in Italy, which sees Liam Neeson play a London artist who works to repair a, a, a dipper... I pronounce... Happens every week. Mm-hmm. There's one word that I'm perfectly fine and we record. A dipolated... I think it's dipolated house in Italy with his estranged son. Finally, Force of Nature sees a policeman and a former cop battle a gang of thieves as they search for $55 million inside an evacuated building during a hurricane. That's fucking insane. That insane. <laughs> well, everything's happening. Going off the cusp of... That was it, right? That's it. Yeah, going off the cusp of the French film that you mentioned, we are doing a film set in France. Ooh. Not that film. But Jake, what are we watching? <laughs> Next week on the show, we're watching Midnight in Paris. In Paru, in Paro. I mean, this this is unbelievable. There's no city like this in the world. You're in love with a fantasy. I'm in love with you. What are you, oh, what are you hey. doing here? Dad's here on business, and we just decided to reload a little. <laughs> oh. That's great. We can spend some time together. Well, I, I think nice. we have a lot of commitments, but I'm sure it's... Well, what? Gil arrives with his fiancée and her family in Paris for a vacation. Even he tries to finish his debut novel, he's beguiled by the city, which takes him to the past, away from his fiancée. This film was directed by, and it's really strange, this is our first ever Woody Allen film. It is, yeah. So, crazy. A Woody Allen film. I don't know how many Woody Allen films I've seen. Not a lot. I've seen maybe E. Think three. Okay. I'd have to look at. I'd have to look at the uh, the old letterbox. Right. Your headphones didn't fall out, listeners. I was like, just playing with the word free. That three. Um, <laughs> no dramas. Well, I am yeah, looking dramas. forward to this film. I have yeah. seen it before. Um, have you? Seen I, it? I have not seen it. So, no, but I it's know. good that we get at least one blind spotting out of the two of us. I think. Yeah, well, exactly. I hate like when I rewatch ET. It's like, well, I can't really log it on Letterbox because I've already done it. Yes. Um, but I know you love it, and I know another person really likes the film that may or may not. Join us next week. Yeah, might be our first guest in about 20 episodes. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> yeah. No worries. But until then, thank you for joining us for the Cinema Sideshow Podcast. I was Zeke. I was Jake. And we'll catch you next week with Midnight in Paris. Paris. Paris.